Welcome to the Phil Hay Show, a weekly collaboration podcast between The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan and I'm joined by Phil Hay from The Athletic. Happy deadline day, everybody. And Michael Normanson from The Square Ball. Hello. And Moscow White, Daniel Chapman, also from The Square Ball. Hello. Bet365 sponsors our podcast and features over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything you'll ever need to bet on sports. And did you know you can create personalised bets with Bet365? The Bet Builder lets you calculate the odds for any game right there in your hands. And Bet365, it's the world's favourite online sports betting company. The app can be downloaded right now from Google Play and the Apple App Store. It's for over 18s only and please gamble responsibly. Fresh from the Bielsa press conference then, Phil, what did we take from today apart from the purity of Marcelo Bielsa's soul? Yeah, it's been nice and relaxed this week, which just goes to show what wrapping up your transfer business and winning a game does. It's been like taking the heat out of the air, like a big massive, massive thunderstorm. And and yeah, you felt it around Thorpe Arch as well. We had that really, really tense awkward press conference with him about two weeks ago where he did look at one point like he was going to body slam his, his translator Diego Flores but yeah I mean pretty happy and, and should be pretty happy really it's been a di- difficult Christmas it's not been an easy January they haven't been brilliant they haven't been terrible either but even you know on Tuesday night against Millwall there was just that sense in the first half and at half time of that little creep you know, step by step of poor results and going backwards in the table. And then they win that game, the stretch clear at the at the top of the league again. And and you can sense that it's done everybody everybody the world a good. Yeah, I mean he, he was he was asked about that result in the fight back and how proud it made him. And and it was typical Bielsa. He just said, I don't want to say that I'm proud of it because then it looks like it was my doing, but in actual fact it was the doing of the players, which is is him all over. Um and you, you get a, a lot of that from him. But some interesting stuff on Augustine as well. Uh, we're already on to the subject of can Augustine and Bamford play together, which of course Bielsa says yes they can, but we all know that they probably won't. And Augustine will, will sit and wait his turn after Bamford scoring twice on Tuesday. You got the sort of standard hints from Bielsa that there's going to be a period of adaptation for Augustine, regardless of the fact that he's been on loan at Monaco and is, is probably relatively match fit. When I went up to Thorpe Arch on Monday just after he'd signed, he was already on the running track that they built for Bielsa, doing laps and laps of it while the rest of the players were training. So he will be well into the into the regime before long. He'll probably have to meet slightly higher standards of fitness and conditioning despite the fact that he looks in excellent nick anyway so I'd be surprised if he's not on the bench against Wigan but I think the idea of him starting or even playing a big part if the game goes well um, is probably a bit fanciful I uh, realised when he replied with that answer about refusing to feel proud because it would take away from the player's achievement I was trying to define how much do I love Marcelo Bielsa and I realised he's so pure I love him in the same way that I love my dog it's completely unconditional he's so kind and gentle never judges me he could do anything, honestly. Eat my slippers and he'd be fine. He was saying very similar stuff on Tuesday night. Was what, what did you say at half time to turn the players around? Said, nothing. They did it. They were playing well in the first half. They played well in the second half. I did nothing. I may as well not be here. <laughs> I'd have been surprised though if any manager at half time on Tuesday had got into the players in a in a big way. Um, I could imagine some probably saying to them, just have a you know have a bit more self confidence and and just believe that it's going to come because they were comfortably the better side than Millwall and you know just one hopeless goal from a corner and then a penalty that was a penalty but the ball had probably gone out before that should have been a throw in prior to the the foul in the box. It was just kind of strokes of poor play strokes of misfortune that were they were undoing a really good performance that inevitably wasn't producing goals at that stage so if he'd come in and said yeah you know I took them to town and, and gave them a good going over I'd have been surprised because it didn't feel like that was what was needed that's maybe what was different from the 
QPR game because we were almost saying it was a good thing that in the second half against QPR, 1-0 down 20 minutes ago, running around as if it's the fifth minute of a playoff semi-final. Um, whereas against Millwall, 2-0 down, probably a worse situation, but it never got into that frantic mode. We just got the ball in the second half and just kept attacking them and everyone just seemed to have that little bit more faith in what they were doing rather than it seemed like absolute desperation at QPR. Yeah, and it was the early goal in the second half as well. We've seen it before with Millwall, but but not only them. Even with a 2-0 lead, if, if you do ship one within five minutes of half time, suddenly you've got the crowd on you, you've got leads with their tails up, you've got a lot of noise and it's it's almost inevitable, particularly in this league, players at, at this level, that they're going to start panicking. And they went from actually being very good on the ball and picking the right passes and, and positioning themselves well to almost not wanting to hold possession at all and not knowing where to put it, not knowing how to play out from the back. And I think we said it at 2-1 that there was no way Millwall were going to be able to withstand that amount of pressure. They weren't going to be able to play like that for 45 minutes if Leeds were able to play like that for 45 minutes. And they just cracked ultimately. And I mean, it, it should have been 4-2-5-2-6-2. You know, it really was heavy, heavy pressure in the second half. And I thought it was quite telling that for all that he moaned a bit about the referee, which was slightly odd, and for all that he was having a bit of a, a niggle afterwards, Gary Rowett just did just say, look, we were, we were taught a lesson and we were second best. It's Millwall, something about Millwall though. I mean, we spoke on Wednesday, yeah. didn't we, on the phone, Phil, and you're opening gambit to me. And bearing in mind, you're a Hearts fan. So, I mean, you're emotionally invested in Leeds, but not to the same extent maybe we are. You can be a bit more dispassionate about it. Your opening line to me was, I don't think I can take another three months of this. I don't think I can. I don't think I can take three months of every game feeling like this. You almost need the odd 3-0, 4-0 Middlesbrough at home thrown in from time to time just to give you a bit of a weekend off and a weekend where you don't feel like everybody's clinging to the sides of their, of their seats. But it isn't going to be like that. I just I, I don't get the sense that Leeds are going to streak away again. I think they've got the potential to open up a, a reasonable gap, but it does feel as if it is going to be tight all the way um, and most of the games are going to be close and, and that is the, the championship really which I, I think to an extent and we, we touched on this in the last podcast about the refereeing is why there is a lot of frustration with the refereeing in the championship because the games are so important which isn't to say they're not important in other leagues it's just that in other leagues you've got Liverpool so far out in front that the rest of the division can't actually see them but in, in this division you know, little moments like that penalty on Tuesday can be absolutely critical and you don't feel as if the referees are getting enough of those decisions right this season. I don't even think that's only our opinion or the opinion of um, of managers and, and coaches. I think a lot of referees think that as well. And we've actually had a question come in from Lee regarding referees. All right, lads. Given the appalling decisions made during the Millwall game by the officials, how does he feel the standard of refereeing and um, assistant refereeing is in this division? And how does it compare to the past? Has it got better, does he think? Or it seems to me that it's got worse, but I might just be sensitive as a Leeds fan these days. Well, he makes a good point, and it refers back to the stuff we were talking about last week, Phil, um, when we spoke quite extensively about the refereeing. But has it got worse? Because we saw some terrible stuff from Darren England um, on Tuesday. I think it has, yeah. I, I do make as much effort as possible not to load everything onto referees and not to see every game in the context of refereeing performances because it is an easy get-out for underperforming players and underperforming managers and you know those excuses have been used forever. But I know of a, a referee, a former referee, who, who watched Tuesday's game and was pretty staggered by some of the decisions that were being made. And what interested me most was the penalty scenario where it looked like Ryan Woods had taken the ball out of play and I haven't seen a replay of it clearly enough and from the right angle to be 100% certain but I think 99 times out of 100 I would have given that as a as a throw-in and I know that the view of a lot of referees would have been that England had had a difficult start to the game anyway Leeds were 1-0 down 
avoid giving him a hospital pass by taking a chance with that one and assuming that it's in when it really looks like it's out. I think in the piece I wrote about VAR and referees, Keith Hackett was saying that assistants don't give enough assistance to referees, that they don't do enough to help them with decisions and to and to keep things right. And I think that was a good example of a point where the linesman must have thought that that had, had run out or had gone very close. And it surprises me that he didn't give... Leeds and England the benefit of the doubt by sticking his flag up just to kind of calm things down a bit. I know it shouldn't really work like that, but it seems like a sensible way to to operate. By that point as well, it had already gone wrong for him because he'd given a corner and then changed his mind and given a goal kick. And there'd been the Stuart Dallas one, which was it wasn't a fingertip save, was it? He got two no. pa- he's got two palms on it and pushed it around the post and, and saw a replay on the big and screen. The top, and and was, to put that on the big screen. He yeah. was just about to book Pablo, I think, for complaining so vehemently to him. And then Pablo just pointed at the big screen and was like, "Look, it's there. Look what happened." And he was like, "Well, I'm not going to book you then." I think that's the thing you see. So you have all that building up and then you have a moment where it looks like the ball's gone out for a throw in and you do think that to help him, you know, common sense decision would be I'm going to flag that because actually to most people in here that does look like it's gone over the line. It's not as if we're just having this conversation on the back of the game on Tuesday. So many, I mean, it was was probably worse at QPR um, in terms of the, you know, the handball decision which was so obvious that, that you can't excuse three match officials plus the fourth official all all missing it but I could give you loads of examples through the, the season and I, I, it's funny that when you think back to the Blackburn game at Ellen Road you remember Tony Tony Mowbray saying is it just me that thinks there's a problem this season or does everybody else and to be quite honest I think everybody else does I quite enjoyed it on Tuesday though <laughs> if ever there was a <laughs> the night, madness you mean like well if ever there was a night for a bad refereeing performance I think that was it it helped us in in some ways when you see Click tweeting afterwards justice and you hear whatever Gary Rowett was referring to at half time where it sounds like somebody has sought out justice um, before the game's even half over maybe you've done without Radrits only tweeting about it because you need to keep that stuff in the tunnels in the, the changing rooms or at least until the game's over but it did something to the atmosphere that maybe it needed because when we were 2-0 down it was going it had that danger of it going flat and Elland Road being flat for big parts of the season when we are top of the league has been a, a problem but it gave us something to a cause and we needed a cause and and click picking up on that and that being part of the the motivation for the second half it felt like the second half was that big click out of to pun on matches out of whatever it went wrong 30 minutes from the end against Cardiff like something happened half an hour from the end and then something happened in that game to to just lift the mood it's like a, an old cartoon when you get hit by the um, an acme mallet <laughs> and then you hit them again and they're back to normal it was it was that kind of thing seemed to happen and I salute Darren England for, for helping um, bring that about <laughs> that's very charitable I mean when it comes to anxiety and hysteria we can't look much further than the Wigan game last year when we look ahead to the weekend and with Wigan on the horizon I mean it all fell apart didn't it Michael this time last year so are you optimistic going into this game I mean that was an example of a referee doing us a favour in that game and we we completely messed it up. It was give us a golden opportunity, didn't he? Man sent off, penalty. It was more or less handing us the three points and we still couldn't do it. So maybe um, maybe we need to keep the injustice going. I don't see any comparison really between this game and the game last season. It was so late in the season and it was right at the point where it was do or die over that Easter weekend. You knew that Sheffield United were going along so nicely that you knew if Leeds dropped a significant number of points and in the end it was six that they were going to be in trouble whereas we're, we're only just creeping into into February Wigan are, I mean they weren't in form last time they're certainly not in form this time can't win away from home don't score enough goals I mean, it's, it's there to be won and 
you know, Bielsa was having a bit of a joke about it today and saying, I can never forget that because he, like everybody else, realises that that was the moment where it all fell apart and where it all dropped to bits and the bottom fell out of the season. But to my mind, there's no significance of the Wigan game last season because of the way, <laughs> because of the timing of it now. Um, and I don't, in all honesty, feel... It wasn't as if Wigan made a huge deal of it in a way that annoyed anybody last season and I kind of feel that if come away with a win on on Saturday it won't feel like Good Friday redeemed at all it'll feel like Good Friday redeemed if Leeds go up Yeah, Wigan were almost irrelevant in that match Leeds it could have been anyone yeah we beat ourselves that day it's a complete mental block yeah something something happened to us and they just happened to be there probably as confused as anybody else when they went home with three points it's funny as well though you mentioned there Phil saying that they don't win away from home they can't score goals if you read the Harry Potter books you'll know that whenever a character says the word Voldemort they all recoil because you're not supposed to say his name I found myself doing that then when you were saying oh they don't win away from home they don't score it's like the scarring from last season is just very very real it's not only that you, you know how my predictions tend to go um, so yeah stand by for a for a stunning away win on, on Saturday but they aren't playing well they, they did get a, a win over Sheffield Wednesday but I was I mean some of Wednesday's defending was baffling and you know Monk was genuinely livid afterwards to, to the point where he was basically threatening to throw players out of the club and saying there'll be some of these that some of these that don't deserve to be here and, and will be going I mean they've got players who can cause problems they've got Kiefer Moore up front they've got Josh Windass although from what I can gather he's him and Paul Cook are not on the best of terms so I don't think he's as involved as he might be otherwise um, and they'll go almost certainly with a 4-2-3-1 and they, they have got a couple of potentially dangerous wide players Jamal Lowe and, and Kieran Dowell who've both got, got a bit of talent but again it, if Leeds are in the sort of mood they were on Tuesday night they'll, they'll have a hard job at the weekend Did we ever look at Jamal Lowe? Because I know he was one of those names that were circulated at the time He was certainly linked but I can't remember a time at which it, it looked in any way close or, or genuinely seemed as if Leeds would sign him this is that game then, though, where we kind of look at it and we go, do you know what, really, they're rubbish. We know they're rubbish and we know we should win this and we have to win this because we are top of the league and they're nearly bottom. So why are we frightened? Um, partly because these are quite often the games that Leeds seem to throw for no apparent reason. I'd also be, well, not frightened, but I'd, I'd be aware of the significance of this one because after this, it's Forest away and then Brentford away, which, you know, you couldn't really ask for two more critical matches in, in terms of the shape of the division at the moment and in the context of discussions about which teams might potentially catch leads. Those are games that they've got to take something from, as much to hold Forest and Brentford back as to, to stretch away. And those games become slightly easier if they take three points against Wigan. If they, if they drop points against Wigan and the table closes up again, that is a tough, tough Saturday to Tuesday run. We win this one, don't we? Probably. You're right, it feels like the easiest home game we have left, followed by the two hardest away games we have left. I think anything, if we could get six points from the three, it'd be a massive result for us. If we don't win this one, I might just not watch the Brentford and Forest ones. Just, I'll just come back when those are played, see what's <laughs> just, happened. Just give it a miss, see where we are. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's deadline day. Uh, this is the deadline day special. A lead's done for the window, Phil? Yes, uh, unless something comes up um, that surprises us at the last minute, which sounds like a, a proper politician's answer. But no, they, they've got the three that they wanted, or the three positions that they wanted covered. They've got two of the players who were absolutely first choice or, or were on the list of, of the exact names that they wanted to do. They they would have taken Shea Adams if they could have had Shea Adams, but Augustine was was there on the list of, of forwards. And those were the, the three players they were after, striker, winger, and the young goalkeeper from, from Italy. So Bielsa says they're done, and if Bielsa says they're done, I think you know that they are. Any sniff maybe of Bowen? Because there are a lot of questions and rumblings maybe on Twitter about that because we know that they were asking somewhere near 28 million were hold, weren't they, at the start of the window. Clock's ticking down now. Price seems to be dropping around the 18 to 20 ballpark. Would Leeds have a sniff at that or is it too much? 
I think it's too much. The message always was that they had the budget for one striker and they had the budget to do a striker. Certainly in the, the bracket of players that they were looking for to do an upfront loan fee with an option or an obligation at the end of it not to sign anybody like Adams or Augustine permanently simply because they don't have the funds to do that and to stay within profit and sustainability calculations. Add to that the fact that I don't think Bielsa wants another forward or another winger particularly and he would see Bowen I think as, as an excess signing at the moment. But it's financial more than anything. They do like him, they, they would take him but it, it won't happen and unless, unless something very, very surprising goes on tomorrow. And I'm still yet to understand how on earth Hull would try to justify loaning him to Leeds for six months in the hope that Leeds would get promoted. I don't see that playing out very well. I just, I just wonder because meant that there's talk of a 10% sell-on fee for Danny Rose. You know, you've now got Union O'Kane certainly off the books to a certain extent because he's uh, gone today as we're recording uh, back to Luton on an 18-month deal. So um, maybe a, a couple of million in from Danny Rose maybe would be, be enough just to... Could be a late move out for Calvin Phillips if that <laughs> if that £40 million bid for Aston Villa is too too strong to resist on Ooh, deadline on day. Deadline. <laughs> on deadline day um, okay, we have to get someone else in O'Kane is actually on a pretty chunky wage I mean he was part of the what they joked was the 2021 club that all got long you know three four year deals back in 2017 I can't imagine Luton will be picking up his in, entire wage and this deal that he's on there will effectively take him to the point 18 month deal at Luton will take him to the point where he's out of contract at Leeds and and can go on a free transfer somewhere. Danny Rose, I think I'm right in saying, has gone on loan, hasn't he, to Newcastle. So there isn't going to be any sell-on from him. There, there was talk of Ronaldo Vieira going to West Ham and also Burnley being interested. Um, West Ham have done a midfielder who is not Vieira. Um, haven't heard any more on Vieira going to Burnley. I'm not entirely sure what the sell-on is. Somebody said to me 10%, somebody else has said to me 15%, but it would be a, you know, a, a decent, sizable amount in the profit that was made on the sort of 6 7 million that Sam Doria paid when they when they first signed him. But the thing you have to remember with Bowen as well, or, or anybody like that, is that they're now in a situation where if they go up, they've got an obligation to sign Augustine from, from Leipzig permanently. They'll do Harrison permanently. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Bielsa seems to love him to bits. There's um, Meslier, the keeper, there's an option there which I think they'd want to take up. I don't know how keen they would be in the event of promotion to have yet another very, very sizable fee that needs to be paid. And, you know, if they were talking 20 million plus for Bowen, you would be in for a hell of a lot of money for existing players before you've even got to the point of adding players to your books. And, and then comes the question, is Bowen actually good enough for the Premier League? Is he going to keep you up? Is that what you want? Or actually, when you get to that point, do players like that, and even a, a Shea Adams, do you start to think, do you know what, we maybe need something different or we maybe need something better? So even though it feels like it would be on the never-never, you do have to be careful about how much you, how much you load yourself up, how much you load on to your accounts potentially um, in the event of promotion. You can't kind of mortgage yourself to the help. Well, let's talk Augustan then, because he's the one who's kind of, he transformed the atmosphere around Ellen Road, certainly yeah. amongst the fan base. Then we, we all came in a lot more positive after he signed. Great article you've done, by the way, on The Athletic, which is Thank well you. worth checking out. If you do want to uh, read Phil's stuff, by the way, Leeds Pod, sign up for The Athletic, theathletic.co.uk, Leeds Pod for a 40% discount, and you can see that Augustan article. What do you make of it? It's one of those where you first question is to ask what exactly he's doing here. I mean, this is um, this is a kid who, when he came through PSG's academy, was talked about in the same kind of terms as Mbappe and, and others like that. When he went to Leipzig, he was 13 million. He had a, a decent first season there. And, and there is bundles and bundles of potential in Augustine, which kind of, in theory, means that he shouldn't be 
be playing in the Championship but he has gone cold in the last 18 months and he is behind a very very good goal scorer in Timo Werner over there but is also behind several others as well and, and there was no attempt at all by Leipzig to convince him that actually he might stick around for the second half of the season and, and try and let them win the Bundesliga but he is incredibly talented and he is very very gifted very skillful, strong physically powerful good not only at finishing but he's he's a good combination player as Bielsa would say he's good at the link up play he's good at building attacks he probably is somebody who doesn't necessarily need to play up front as a number nine all the time it's got the potential to be a very very good signing I think it's fair to say that Shea Adams would have been the one I think that was the one that, that was top of the list and, and who they really wanted but Augustine is somebody who Bielsa has known about for a long time is, is ultra keen on and he'll be as much as he never says anything like this he'll be quietly delighted with that one let's get a German perspective on this then now James Thurigood Bundesliga commentator is on the line thanks for joining us James oh, it's an absolute pleasure happy to come on so uh, tell us a little bit about Jean-Kevin Augustin from your experience uh, of his time in Germany well I mean he came to Leipzig uh, a bit of a precocious talent I think it's fair to say and he, he turned out to be more problematic than I think the club had hoped um, you know, he's brought in on quite a big deal at the time for a side like Leipzig, signed for 13 million euros from Paris Saint-Germain. And I think he came in with a little bit of a felt too big for his boots kind of feel to him. Um, and Leipzig tried to get him a little more grounded. They gave him the chances to prove himself. And let's be honest, when he was out on the pitch, he looked very sharp at times um, and was definitely a goal scorer out and out. Um but there were these off the field um, and what the club referred to as constant disciplinary issues in terms of being late to training um, and things like that. And Leipzig are quite a strict club. And it seems like Jean-Kevin Augustin never really quite got on board with how strict Leipzig are. Um, and as a result, I think he's been looking for greener grass elsewhere. Monaco didn't work out for him. But I have to say, I'm very excited to see what he can do with Leeds because he is a, a very talented striker. He's got pace to burn, good movement, sometimes a bit of a one-track mind, but that could serve him well uh, in the championship, I believe. James, it's Phil here. Um, do you do you think he was aware of the fact that he was a, a, a problem in terms of discipline? Do you think he, he was aware of, of what was going wrong for him and, and did he make efforts to address that? Well, this is it. The, the issues took, I'd say his first season at the club went relatively smoothly as I say. He was given chances to prove himself both in the Bundesliga and in the Champions League. Um, during my work with UEFA, I was actually covering, covering Leipzig's Champions League run. Um, and he made five appearances in the group stages. Uh, they ultimately got knocked out in the group stages. Um, but four starts out of five appearances. He only got one goal, which came against Porto, which was a lovely one-on-one finish. And those were the types of moments that you saw the flashes of brilliance from him when it came to the talent and the reason that Leipzig wanted to sign him. Um, and then he just started to fall out of favour and he went from being the third-choice striker with a chance at kind of getting in, breaking into the starting lineup to gradually dropping down the pecking order to the point right now I'd say he's sixth-choice or was sixth-choice at the club um, before moving to Monaco. And so there's an element where I think he definitely tried to redeem himself with the club. I just feel like there was a statement from Ralph Rangnick, um, the sporting director at the time, that kind of rang very true. And it was about him and Nordi Mukiela. Now, Nordi Mukiela is now the starting right back under Julian Nagelsmann. And he really seems to have got his act together. Whereas Jean-Kevin Augustin never really seemed to really win back the good graces of the club, despite the fact they saw him as a talented striker. James, so if he is a little bit temperamental and he's maybe got these discipline issues in his past, 
it, do you find it a bit strange that he's handpicked a club almost? Because they've done research into um, into which club he wanted to go to and he liked what he saw from the video clips of Leeds. Going to, to a Bielsa team, attacks a lot, obviously, great for him. But in terms of the discipline, is that going to be an issue? Well, I have to say, he bought into Leipzig's style of play in terms of the pressing um, and the discipline needed on the pitch to execute the game plan that Leipzig wanted to execute. So I think on the pitch, it genuinely wasn't the problem with him. It really was some of his behaviour off the pitch. And as I say, Leipzig, they just have such a strict set of rules and demands and standards that they set for these players that I think, you know, the damage was done with him and other players then excelled uh, whilst, you know, uh, staying true to the rules that the, the club had put in place. And I think that's why he dropped down the pecking order. But I'm not surprised that he liked the look of a club like Leeds. You know, um, coming from Bundesliga atmospheres, you know, they, they bring quite a raucous crowd and Leeds, let's be honest, I, I know their reputation uh, as being a very raucous bunch as well in terms of making a good atmosphere. And it's, a, I think, a club that could suit him well in that case because he can buy into the club and the club can buy into him. And I think if he gets the full backing of the club and the fans, I think that is what Jean-Kevin Augustin needs to get the best out of him. And I think at Leipzig, it, it felt like he didn't have the full backing of the club and therefore he never really gave fully back to them. On his CV, James, he's got PSG, he's got Leipzig, he's got Monaco, who are very big, big French club. D- did you expect him to go to the, the Premier League? And, and is this a coup for a championship club? Or, or has he lost his way in the last 18 months? And, and are people in Leipzig of the opinion that actually this is perhaps the level he needs to be at and, until, he, until he picks up a bit? I, I don't know whether it's necessarily about him needing to be at the level of the championship, although I do think that's a good place for him to start on his path back to redemption. I think he's definitely got a point to prove. Um, And there were obviously rumours in the past linking him with, I think, Everton, with the predominant club he kept getting linked with. And that was admittedly the time where Leipzig really seemed to be desperate to cut their ties with him and just kind of, you know, maybe recoup some of the money back and maybe even sell him on for a profit. Because I can't, stress the point enough he is definitely a very talented striker we saw that during his time at Leipzig Um, and I do think as I say the Premier League was maybe the dream for him but as when he came to Leipzig he had this he had this feel of him being too big for his boots and maybe he now has taken the time just to humble himself and, and that is maybe a good thing for him moving forward and could be a great thing for Leeds because I do think this could be further down the line a big coup for them and I also I have to say I think it's a great bit of business by Leipzig, because the rumours in the German press um, are that if Leeds get promoted, there's a 21 million euro clause in the contract that automatically comes in place, meaning that Leeds will have to buy it. Um, And so for Leipzig, I think they've done very well to actually potentially even get profit out of this deal. But I do believe that if Jean-Kevin Algersan fulfills his potential, he in today's market could be worth well more than 21 million euros. Thanks very much, James. Right, cool. Have a good one, guys. See you later, mate. Bye, bye. I mean, have you got any concerns about his discipline then, Michael? Arthur does like a bad boy sometimes. I think possibly because they they bring a better quality of player into into our price bracket. Like Did the same thing with Saez. Lasaga, to an extent, felt a bit like this as well. It was a, a striker who'd got a good pedigree. had really good runs in his career and at times been thought of as a, you know, a German international at one point. And then by the time he came to us, we were not getting the best of him, we'll say. 
this does feel exciting. It, more so than Che Adams. It's possibly just because I've never seen him play before, but this, I don't know, the explosive nature of him, it's an unknown, which I, I quite like personally. Do you think Otter's a bit like, you know, the girls who chase the bad boys? I can fix him. I can fix him. I can turn him around. I mean, if anyone can fix them, it is Bielsa. I think the thing is with, with Saiz and Lasaga, they were primarily here under Christensen and Peckingbottom, and, and I wouldn't have listened to them either. If you won't listen to Bielsa... I was, was going to say, to you've also got a father figure in Bielsa who'll be waiting with a baseball bat if there's any any nonsense. So it's a, probably a bit easier to take a chance on ones like that. And yeah. it's quite nice to see Mendy there as well, who is who he's obviously friends with, who Bielsa is credited with turning his career around. Maybe having having a mate who's going, he's all right, this guy, you know, you should listen to him. Do what he, Just do what he tells you, whatever it is. Just go around that track an extra few times if that's what he wants. And you kind of wonder, don't you, if maybe there is a willingness now that, that he's reached a point in his life at, what is he, 22, where he's had a little bit of an awakening and thought, if I don't kind of knuckle down and do this, my career could be on the rocks here. So maybe I do need to kind of bow to this discipline. Well, the story goes, and it is true, that he had um, Manchester United phoning him on Sundays, Leeds were trying to trying to wrap up the deal and, and I've got to say in all my time of covering transfers I don't think I've ever seen the club as paranoid as they were about this one and the fear that it was going to fall through at the last minute I mean it's quite funny because I, I spoke to Saul Bamba about him for a piece I wrote, wrote on Wednesday and Bamba was kind of saying no it was always going to be Leeds you know it's never never any any doubt about that because he knows Augustine and they've got the same agent so they were in touch on Sunday and, and chatting on and I think as much as Man United were, were having a go they came in so late that I don't think it was particularly convincing and I don't think Augustine thought it was anything other than just a kind of late dive to desperately try and try and get something and it has to be said that being offered Old Trafford now is not like being offered Old Trafford 10 years ago when they actually looked like they had a, a clue about recruitment or anything else for that matter that wasn't commercially driven and, and didn't involve trying to make money you know Leeds obviously knew that they were onto a good thing so they had him in by private jet and they got a car to the runway so that nobody saw him and then he was sneaked into the Hilton and they even set, set up um, a second room with medical facilities so that he could have the, the medical on the Monday morning straight away and, and be signed in time for the Millwall game even though everybody knew that Bielsa wasn't going to include him in the squad because he, he never does and, and as I say it was quite funny to see him on the running track because he thought at least straight away he knows what he's in for and, and he knows that there aren't any sacred cows up there and you get run to death regardless of, of who you are but it is a very interesting one it'll be fascinating to see how he does and it, it's I, I like transfers that you look at and think you know, in six months' time or 12 months' time, you could look back at this and say, what an absolutely blinding deal that was. And I know the trend that leads is that you generally look back and say, well, that was a complete disaster, wasn't it? But um, there is there is a lot of potential in this one, I think. What I found interesting from the press conference today anyway is that he handpicked Leeds. There was research on his part and his agent. They watched videos of how we play and he felt that it was a good fit for him. And you couldn't necessarily say the same for someone like Man United, which is mental when you think about it. Well, but this is what I'm saying, though. You know, you've got Manchester United on the phone, Crystal Palace were keen on him as well, and it has ultimately been his decision to come here. And I think Bielsa will have been a very big factor in that. I think Bielsa is in, in a lot of the, the transfers that Leeds do. But this wasn't one where he literally had no options and he was kind of floating around looking for a club and Leeds said, look, why don't you come to the Championship, have a go here, get promoted, we'll, we'll sign you permanently, and then you'll, you know, you'll, you'll be in the Premier league he, he could have gone somewhere else and he is he is still a valuable commodity which is why Leipzig want to make the money back and more at the end of this season and certainly will do if, if Leeds go up um, because he, he is young he's only 22 he's by no means past it he's by no means a, a busted flush he's just had 18 quiet months which have turned him from a very very hot prospect into somebody who kind of needs to find himself again it is a big change at Leeds that maybe we need to catch up with as fans that although we we criticise 
Harrison's final ball and I don't think Elder Cost has quite done it yet. But if you're a striker sitting watching that game on Tuesday night, seeing how many chances we create against Millwall and thinking, and for the the ones that uh, particularly Bamford's second one, you'd love to just have all those crosses flying across that you can just nod in from a yard and the ball that's being put into the box constantly, which is where you want to play. And I suppose what it comes down to, whether whatever level it is, you want to be in a team that's, if you're a striker, that's going to create chances, you'll score the goals. It's in front of a big crowd and you're going to get paid a lot. So everything kind of lines up. It's a much better offer than Crystal Palace still, even though we've not been in the Premier League for 15 years. You go to, I mean, when... Croydon. Yeah. Selhurst Park still looks like a shed. It's it's <laughs> good atmosphere it's at like Palace, a, you know. I will defend Palace uh, to a point. Impo- I'm not suggesting impo- he should have uh, gone there, no. but uh, it's good, good little atmosphere. It's impossible it? to get there. It's impossible to get but there. But how many? Yeah. I mean, how many goals? Every striker that goes to Palace just stops scoring, and then you know you're going to lose more games than you win, and it's just not fun. Whereas there is. He spoke of the project yeah. in, in the press conference, so exactly that is he sees something there that he can get he can get involved in, and then you've got. Bielsa, who has managed Batistute to manage Crespo, managed Lorente, managed Bamford, all the big <laughs> names. And he can see the track, right? And he can see there, this manager will do something for me if I do something for him. And signing up for it is a big statement of intent. Bear in mind as well that it's not as if Leeds have been able to do this on a whim and just, you know, take a bit of a bit of a punt and, and see how it goes. If they're promoted, it's a, an obligation that they've got to sign him. And they haven't spoken figures over here, but in Germany, I, I had a chat with a couple of journalists over there who said that their understanding from the briefings that, that Leipzig have been given is that they'll be looking at pretty close to £20 million. From so them. Do you think it ties in with what we heard from James? The, well, yeah, yeah no, it does. Yeah, yeah. And, and it also ties in with the fact that the last bid for Shea Adams was a loan fee with an with a promise of twenty million pounds for him if um, if they were promoted, so that was that was the point that they got to, and that was the ballpark they were talking about, and the fact that that was publicised pretty much gave Leipzig a heads up of what they should be asking for on the basis of them saying, well, is Shea Adams better than Augustine? Is there more pedigree there? Probably not, really. So if it's £20 million for him, then it's, it's uh, for Adams, then it's £20 million for, for Augustine. And there is an option to keep him if they stay in the Championship. They do have an option there, but it becomes a totally different consideration because of the finances involved. Let's move on to Ian Pervader now then, if we can. The other one, big, biggish one that was signed during the transfer window. Um, five foot five? Well, yes, I know. Miguel Rios is on the line. We're going to speak to Miguel in a second. Uh, Miguel, his background, he's currently head of football intelligence at Opta, but before that, done a lot of scouting for Arsenal, Wolves, Brentford, uh, amongst others, and has been tracking the the progress of Ian Pervader and has signed him actually as a junior in the past, hasn't he, Phil? He has. He, um, he was responsible for taking him to Arsenal. Pervader was virtually signed by Chelsea. It was pretty much 99% done. You can't sign kids officially until they get to under nine's age, but Rios had become aware of him and, and just managed to nick him at the last minute and was also uh, the scout who brought him back to Brentford from Barcelona midway through his, his teens. And Miguel's on the line now. Thanks for joining us, Miguel. I appreciate it. appreciate you having me on, to be honest. Uh, so tell us a little bit about Ian Pervader then and your earliest memory, perhaps, of him, because you've been following him for a long time. First time I came across Ian was as an under-eight, so he would have been seven. He's the late, he's the latest birthday, so um, he might have been seven at the time at Arsenal. He came in left-footed, really technical for his age, quite underdeveloped physically. So you'd see him and he, he was probably one of the smallest in a group, but once he got on, on the ball and on the train in training and in in games, it affects it technically. Um, at times against bigger boys, he might have struggled in bigger areas, but still he needed to get on the ball and he knew 
and when to get on the ball and, and how to get on the ball in the right areas higher up the pitch. Scouts are obviously aware of the best of the best when it comes to young talent. At, at the time yeah. at Arsenal, was he considered to be one of those? I mean, was he somebody that a lot of people were speaking about? I think they were in London, so most clubs in London knew about him. His dad was quite... Um, Omar was quite switched on to the fact that he was a good player. He wanted his best interests for him and, and he looked around all the clubs to see what he felt was the best for Giancarlo's development. Um, being small of his age, the technical training, um, and that's probably the reason that he chose Arsenal. And what can you see when you spot a player at sort of seven or eight years old oh, then, Miguel? Because um, I think from a fan's perspective, it's, it's hard to understand how did this start scouting them so early in their career? It's a difficult one. You, you would never, ever say that that player is going to make it professional at a young age it's impossible you're able to say that that child's got a chance because our children are under seven under eight they're, they're still babies really so it's really picking or selecting the right players at those age groups that you feel will get through the academy system that have got the attributes and qualities about them to get through the academy system hopefully to get a scholarship but to get a pro I think it's 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 virtually impossible to say it's silly to be able to say anyone to say they can identify a player at eight and say he's good enough to make it right through the system so they must have what is their outstanding attributes do you think attributes got a ceiling for example will it will it finish at one point and, and other children will catch up so it's a session completely what they're good enough physically mentally technically and at seven or eight they're going to change over time anyway so what you're seeing at 7 or 8 may be different at 11 or 12. He went to Barcelona from Arsenal and then you were involved in, in bringing him back to, to Brentford when he was about 14, 15. Can you give us some idea of, of the change you saw in him between Arsenal and Brentford and, and also some thoughts on whether at that stage you started to think that there definitely was a professional player in there? Yeah, so physically he changed. So he wasn't no longer really the smallest in the group. And, and I'm always careful when I say physically because physically can be athletically speed and, and all the attributes around the, the physical side of the game so he was sharp he was quick he was agile nimble so he could switch to either feet quickly uh, move his body weight from one side to the other to take the ball either side so he changed and got stronger in the ball he knew he was a lot better in protecting the ball not just physically but tactically so running across players when he received so he could protect the ball and then thinking he's got a chance professionally when he came in he was still 14 trained with 15s probably one of the better players, trying to 16, probably one of the better players. Had opportunities of the 18s, 23s, affected the game. So when players like that start to affect the game in older age groups, you're starting to think, yes, they're, 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 they're going to make it professionally. Long way to do, go for a 14-year-old physically because, again, they might they might come to a point where they don't develop and have a ceiling physically. Do you see him as a, as a Bielsa player, Miguel, not only in terms of ability but also in terms of attitude because there were issues at, at City towards the end. I know that they went back down to the 23s from the first-team squad and was late for training a couple of times. I think it, it wasn't all sweetness and light towards the end. Will he be a good fit for Bielsa, do you think? I mean, I can only really speak on the pitch. I haven't, I haven't, um, I'm not sure what happened at City, but on the pitch, tactically very bright, very alert to what's going on around him to adapt to different game situations. So for me, he can play across anywhere across the attacking midfield three. Could probably play in if he plays through centre, dropping into one of those three positions, rotating within the game. So he, he knows how to create space for others. That's one of the things when he came back, from Spain, tactically, he was a lot more alert um, of what's required. And Bielsa's football is, um, there's a lot of rotations in transition. So I think he's he's got the attributes there to fit in technically and tactically to what's required. 
I mean, we've seen the YouTube videos, Miguel, and he looks yep. very, very bright indeed. Um, in your eyes, what, what can we expect from him as a Leeds United player? It's going to take a, an adaptation. He's still, um, he's still young. He's 19, going to 20. It's going to take him a while to get up to speed at the championship. Game situations will be interesting. So coming on at, at right times in games, but like any young player, they just need the opportunity. And anyone, a young players just need the opportunity to show how good they are most of the time. They, they tend to prove us wrong because a lot of times when I look at, for example, someone like Chelsea, um, not many people would have said that those young players, I've seen them, I've seen them grow up as well, but not all of them would have said they were ready for Premier League football. So I think once you give them the opportunity in the right game condition, they, they do surprise you. Just a last um, last question, Miguel. I, I wrote about Ian last week and I spoke to Anthony Hayes, who you'll yep. know well and, and who was at yep. Brentford in, in the academy at the time when, when Ian was there. And, and he was joking that the staff, you know, on the quiet used to nickname him the, the little wizard. There's been a lot of thought of this guy for, for quite a while, hasn't there? Yeah, I mean, when, uh, it was quite funny. Um, I didn't really, I, when we signed him, I really had to keep, we had to really keep that quiet, um, who was coming into the building, not to alert any other clubs, anything else. Got him into training and the coaches just couldn't believe how good he was technically, what he could do with the ball, it, it, his manipulation of the ball, receiving it on the move, standstill. It was just excellent. It, he's just one of those players that can change things in games, has the ability for the ability to make good decisions but also to change decisions when the picture in front of him changes so he just surprised everyone and, and experienced coaches saw him and, and really couldn't believe how good he was Well fingers crossed he keeps it up Miguel thank you so much for your time It's a pleasure Thank you Take care Top man thank you Cheers thank you. Okay, bye. bye So sounds like a real prospect anyway that we've got on our hands He seemed to enjoy himself on Tuesday nights he was it's it maybe says something about Bielsa's willingness to use these players in advance of Jean Kevin that Pervaders straight on the bench. He did have ten days of training to get used to it, but he's I think sometimes the the idea that he's gonna keep a player back for six months before daring to give them a minute gets overplayed. He was there and ready to come on if if there'd been, you know, three injuries and in attack and he had no choice. But certainly he was enjoying getting involved in the Celebrations. He did come face to face. I noticed in the replays when the winner was scored with um, Alioski, <laughs> who seemed to to greet his presence in the the celebratory huddle with a, a sort of a grimace and then a slight punch to the to the shoulder, as if you get out, you're not you're not involved that's, in this yet. That's affection. Oh. It is. It is. It wasn't quite on a on a par with when. Um, Janssen kissed him and stroked his ear and he got smacked and sworn at. But um, but yeah, he, he seemed, uh, with what Stuart Dalles was saying about him being uh, straight in with the, the squad, maybe some of the advantages of, of Bielsa keeping it lean in terms of numbers means there's, maybe there aren't the, the cliques that a bigger club with 40 players in the, the canteen would be a, a problem for him to face. He seems to have got straight involved. Alioski had given up um, all his affection by kissing the ball girl, I think, earlier earlier in the game. So there's none left for poor old Pervera, even though he might have looked like a ball boy at, at five foot <laughs> five foot five. He's um interesting background, Pervera. I mean, if you look at his clubs, he's he's gone from Chelsea to Arsenal to Barcelona to Brentford to, to Manchester City and now Leeds. And I know people will laugh about Brentford, but Brentford are very good at signing 
quality players. They have a real eye for, for that. And he was a little bit unfortunate at Barcelona because they took him over from Arsenal and the plan was to get him on their version of a of a scholarship. And then they were punished by FIFA for essentially signing minors illegally um, and for not following the, the protocol for, for what you have to do when you bring kids on board. So they had all these players pervaded included who they couldn't register. And so it was that Brentford realised he was available. Rios was there who knew him well and on the quiet they, they brought him in and Brentford's academy staff were just pretty staggered at the ability and, and staggered by the fact that he was he was actually there but they had a good tie-in with um, Uxbridge High School which meant he could go there and Pervade's dad by all accounts quite a disciplinarian and very big on hard work in school as well as hard work in, in football so it doesn't surprise me that he's come in and is doing well already because he seems ex- extremely focused from what I've heard about him From a fan's point of view what are we looking forward to when we've got a small player there who's quick, direct Someone who can change things off the bench. I think sometimes in recent weeks you have looked at the bench and it's been a bit, a bit underwhelming. Just to see, there's no one, there's not really been anyone on there that you've that you've thought can come on and turn a game. And I suppose it's a bit like Augusta in the same respect that we don't really know it, what he can do yet. But just having that thing of being able to bring someone on and as much for the opposition to not know what they're going to face as well. I, I likened it in the other podcast when we signed Max Gradle and we were just bringing him off the bench and he was just causing chaos for the last half hour of a match. Just someone who can maybe do that for us. And also the stuff about him being able to play anywhere across an attacking three is interesting because if Pablo's having an off day or has to miss a couple of games for injury, maybe he can fill in there as well. And I think we said on our podcast earlier in the week, Phil, replace Jack Clark and have 10 million in the bank and Ian Pervader. Seems like a pretty good deal all, all round. Yeah, no, it is. Um, I mean, I, I felt that 9.4 million plus Clark back on loan was a, a very, very good deal. And they've, they've done well out of that one. And whether or not you think that Bielsa has got enough players, whether you think he should have another centre-back, another centre-mid, they, they have done what they wanted to do in this window. They they were in for Pervader from the start. They were in for the, the young keeper, Caprile, there were other strikers, obviously, but they wanted a sort of high calibre, very good pedigree centre forward to go alongside Bamford. They've got Augustine. They are very happy down there. I mean, as, as ever, you'll judge the window at the end of the season, depending on how it's gone. But they're um, they're pretty pleased with themselves. This athletic podcast is brought to you in association with Stitch Fix, an online personal styling service that takes the hard work out of dressing well. Dead simple to give your wardrobe a bit of TLC. Here's what you need to do. Get to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic. Tell us a little bit about yourself in the quick style quiz, like shape and size, your budget, your style, what you like. Then you'll get five items of clothing sent out to you, each one handpicked for you by your personal stylist. They come from a selection of 100 brands, including big names, emerging designers, and everyone in between. Then you can try on everything at home before you buy. Then you pay for what you love and then send the rest back. Delivery and returns are all free and you don't need a subscription to sign up. You do pay a tenner for your stylist's time, but that's then deducted from the cost of anything that you decide to buy. Dead simple, pain-free way to get yourself looking really, really sharp if you want to get rid of the hoodies and the jeans and just notch it up a level. So you can get started with Stitch Fix today and support our podcast by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic right now. That's S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X.co.uk forward slash athletic. Talk to me about Adidas then, Phil, because there was a little bit of a, a rowing back to shore from the club, wasn't there, when this story broke in the media last week about this potential kit deal and the club have been quick to sort of... Uh, Pour a bit of water on that, presumably to keep Kappa happy at the minute. But. Yeah, and um, poured water on it in the sense of insisting that nothing was agreed. It was in the Daily Mail saying that a, a deal had been done with Adidas for next season. And we've talked about Adidas on this podcast before. I think it won't be a surprise at all if that happens because they've been talking to them since last summer and it's very much very much on the cards. The, the Close to the end of a five-year deal with Kappa, which was done when Chilino was, um, was owner. And, and actually, the feeling about the Kappa deal is that by championship standards, it is pretty lucrative. I mean, 
mean, back at the time it was agreed, I, I was told that it was worth around about two and a half million euros, so two million pounds um, a year to the club. And it, it depended on shirt sales and, and everything else, but that was what they, they expected to make. And I don't think there's a, a feeling at Leeds at all that Kappa aren't good enough for them. Um, and the, the contract, as, as I understand it, will give Kappa the right to, to match the best offer that comes in in the way that, that New Balance were in theory, able to do when Liverpool were, were trying to take on take on Nike. The, the problem there was that ultimately the definition of an identical offer didn't stand up in court because Nike, like Adidas, have a, a much wider reach, huge, almost mind-bogglingly extensive distribution system. And therefore, even though financially the deals might look the same on paper, in terms of royalties and what you're going to earn, you're likely to get far more from a, a manufacturer like Adidas because of the, the reach that they have. And, and I think Nike have had a look as well. Under, under Armour has um, kind of had a dabble, although it does seem to me like it, it will be Adidas. And it's, I was finding out a little bit about the, the shirt sales and everything at least. They've done 110,000 this year, which is... By all accounts, we put them in the top six, the Premier League of shirt sales, a long way behind Liverpool and Manchester United, who you know sales go go absolutely sky high. But as I understand it, they're, they're, they sell more than West Ham, they sell more than Everton, and they're in a really really good place commercially with shirts. So you can understand why somebody like Adidas would want to get involved. I think one of the um, maybe the beefs that we've got as fans is that availability is not always great for the shirts, and we don't know whether that's the club or the supplier or, or what. Uh, availability at key times of the season has always been a problem in recent years. The Macron gold shirts are still available I believe yes. yeah job lot well well, of course they, they bought their way out of the Macron deal and um, they had to pay a lot of money to sever that and were left with a lot of stock that they essentially had very little to, to do with so comma gold it, it, it is in the accounts as stock write downs or whatever the, the terminology is but essentially um, Chilino was done with them and, and wanted to get Kappa on board it, it's hard for me to comment on availability because obviously I don't buy the kits the one thing I would say was that being in the club shop on Tuesday before the game the kits are everywhere you know, they, they are pretty readily available. The question is, does anybody want them to be readily available in January? Probably not. I mean, you, you're getting towards far sale territory now, which is the point at which every season the, the cost of the kit gets slashed and they try to get rid of, of everything they can. But the numbers are significant. And I spoke to um, I spoke to somebody who'd been commercial director at, at Rangers up in Glasgow and, and also at Watford, who said 110,000 sales a season uh, below your really top bracket of your Liverpools, as an example, is phenomenal you know it's very very high numbers and, and that's only going to increase if they if they become a, a Premier League club so there's money to be made and as I say it doesn't surprise me that Adidas would be very keen Fair to say maybe there's a, there's a certain amount of, of our own redemption story involved in this in that tying in with such a global brand like Adidas would be seen as part of another step along the journey of getting back to where we in our own minds hope and think and expect we should be really like when you know Nike and the Champions League era and now Adidas in a way but it's almost extraordinary that we are still selling that many shirts after 15 years out of the the championship maybe we Adidas probably need us as much as or want us as much as we want them and Absolutely. for for the to look at it in sort of brand terms for Leeds United to still be a strong enough national international brand that they can outsell the exposure that other that clubs in the Premier League get is not enough for them to outsell Leeds United shirts who for 10 15 years have been awful it's extraordinary. It says something about Leeds United and says something about that I've referred to before that, you know, the Premier League should have sorted this out years ago. Just 
swap us from 15th in the first division to 15th <laughs> in the in the Premier League and, and not worry about the whole promotion part of it. Just put us up there just for our name and our brand power alone and, you know, take advantage of those, the the way that modern football concentrates on, you know, what's your commercial income? How many shirts do you sell? Who's your tractor sponsor? Yeah, yeah exactly. Which, which they do well, have. The let me lot. ask you something. What was, the, what was your view of the charcoal and pink kit when it was released? Abomination or... Personally, I mean, I don't want to speak on behalf of everybody, but I, I looked at it and I thought, it's a nice kit because it's really different and it'll probably sell really well. It's not a Leeds kit and it's not a Leeds kit in our centenary year. That said, I don't have any objection to seeing it at the minute. I go, I really like that as a kit. I quite like that. As a, as a third kit, I think it's good. As an away kit in some other seasons, maybe. I'm a, I'm a bit of a traditionalist in that I do like to see yellow as, as the main colour on the away kit. I think it's fine. It if, if, Moscow, if Moscow says he leaks it, I will um, I will drop dead. It hasn't ruined any games. I think that's the thing. There was a worry that wearing something like that during the centenary year would be some kind of like the, the you know the the ghost of like a hex. Uh, yeah, the, like Arthur Fairclough was going to come <laughs> out of the grave and say, "What, what is this?" So yeah, I, I looked at it, just thought that's not really a Leeds kit, but it's an away kit, and I won't be buying it and it's yeah fine the, the, the blue one that's come criticism. out is a lot nicer yeah but but then so that's coming uh, later as well I, I always kind of knew well there's going to be another kit along at some point so that's kind of with the cycle of them now you've only got about three months to to really care about it you almost spend more time waiting for the new kit to be unveiled than you do actually seeing yeah. it on the pitch there's a lot of criticism of it I mean there's no doubt it was a very sort of marmite kit when it came out but it's commercially the best away kit they've ever had um, that one it's sold in such big numbers that nothing else touches it mm. and it is one area where Leeds you know, there's, there are things that need to change at Leeds for them to be Premier League as the Premier League understands clubs now they do need a, an upgraded training ground to be on a par with the, the best clubs Ellen Road needs an overhaul I don't think I think people love the rough and ready nature of it but when you go to the Emirates you see what other clubs are doing properly and, and, and why it is that they're commercially successful but Commercially, Leeds are very savvy and and actually very talented, and and they've been trying to get the turnover up to fifty million. They're not far off, and you know that's way above the average in the Championship. It it really is, and they have got a Premier League coach in um, in Bielsa as well. And the funny thing about Adidas is that whenever I think of Bielsa, the, the one image that springs to mind is of him in the Marseille tracksuit. From what I can gather, he, he's quite a big fan of Adidas gear, and and he is a man who knows his sports gear because he wears a lot of it yeah I mean I'm, I'm not fatalistic but when you heard that the name Adidas and you know we've got Bielsa it's just and the centenary just all ties in together it's a marketer's dream isn't it a red and black away kit next season can't wait a little Newell's throwback <laughs> hey listen let's move on then to a question from Phil hello uh, it's Phil here Leeds fan uh, Leeds in, in London um, just a question for Phil um, regarding Stuart Dallas I'm a big fan of his he's been fantastic this season when he's playing central midfield though I'm not sure what he's doing for us is it an idea to play him we've got to play him wide but you're not going to play him instead of Harrison or Costa is it better to play him or Ailing? is it better to play him at left back where I think in the, in the earlier in the season when he was there we looked a lot more solid defensively keep him there put Alioski back on the bench is that his best position and put someone who can offer a little bit more in central midfield in there be interested to hear your thoughts keep up the good work Phil got in touch, by the way, on our WhatsApp number. Uh, drop us a voice memo like he did. If you put into your web browser on your phone, the squareball.net forward slash WhatsApp, it'll take you through to WhatsApp and do all the rest for you. So, Stuart Dallas. Yeah, from one Phil to another, I agree. Um, he, he doesn't look as comfortable or, or as well-suited to central midfield role. They 
the answer to the question, why is he playing there? Because who else would? I mean, there was no Calvin Phillips on Tuesday night. There was no um, Adam Forshaw, as there hasn't been for months. Now, there is Jamie Shackleton, but he's only literally back from injury and his fitness has been a problem this season. And it and it isn't really Bielsa's style to, out of the blue, say, right, OK, you get thrown into this game that that we really, really need to win. And plus, he's a, he is a huge fan of Dallas's attitude and, and general play. He, Dallas ticks a, a lot of boxes for him. He's been best at right back. I think that's been perfectly obvious. But in no way is Ailing playing in a way that would make you think that a change desperately needs to be made there. So we had Dallas um, at the press conference before the Millwall game and somebody did say to him, it seems as if Bielsa will find a place for you in the team no matter what, you know, somehow he will get you into the eleven. And Dallas just said, well, I never want to think like that because if you do, then you're bound to, to get complacent. But there's no doubt at all that he's one of the players that Bielsa does feel a little bit like, you know, your, your Alioskis and so on, that regardless of flair or whatever else, he, he, he you know, he, he feels like he needs that in the team. And as I say, in terms of the, the midfield conundrum, when you've got Phillips suspended and you've got Forshaw injured, what do you do? It was interesting with... Uh... Marcelo Bielsa kind of outlined all the moves on Tuesday night for how he got around Phillips not being there. And obviously that was the the one to watch last week to see how that would be filled. And it turned out all sorts of different ways with White kind of... I wonder if he was supposed to start there, but then Millwall's lineup just meant he had to drop back into defence. And then Dallas was at, at right back, at least according to Bielsa. The, you end up looking at the... He'll probably be in their penalty area half the time, no matter what position he's playing. But without uh, ailing at sent half um, with Cooper and then once they dropped back from having two and three up front then White stepped forward and um, White stepped back sorry Dallas into midfield so it all all very fluid and that's maybe one of the advantages of Dallas not being 100% in midfield but having his 80% in there and the ability to then be he'll be 80% if you have to move him here 80% if you have to move him there rather than a, a specialist he likes his little floating movements that you can just change in the game that's it. It's not just the starting position. There's the moments in a match where he's like, right, I need to put Stuart Dallas somewhere else to achieve something different. And yeah, he gives you that. There are games where I've given up trying to work out what the formation is. I forget now exactly which game it was. It might have been Reading away. But I mean, I I watched that for about 20 minutes and it was impossible to put. You had a vague idea of what it could be. But then every time Leeds had the ball or, or didn't have the ball, it would shift and it would change. And sometimes it looked like three at the back and it looked like five and it looked like four. And, and, you know, players are shifting all over and, and that seems to be the way Bielsa likes it and it's always impressed me that the players are actually able to cope with that because it must be pretty mind-boggling. Is that down to his man-to-man system? Because a lot of in, in managers part, in the yeah. Championship have said it's it's not very common for a Championship level for people to go man-to-man all over the pitch but we seem to do that. Yeah, and, and you look at... It works with Bielsa so you don't really question it but you look from time to time at the way in which players will track opposition players to the point where it takes them... 20, 30, 40 yards out of position and think that it's almost like tactical suicide. I, I thought it was quite noticeable in one of the Scotland games that Liam Cooper um, played in that one of the, I think it was Russia, there was a, a goal that Russia scored where he was caught out of the back four and it was it looked to me essentially because he was trying to man mark. Nobody else in the back lane was trying to man mark. I mean, Scotland's defence generally doesn't seem to do very much. But he, you you kind of got the impression of somebody that had been so drilled under Bielsa into doing that that it was pretty instinctive and, and automatic. So he kind of went with it. So yeah, that is part of the reason. But also they do just rotate and they are very good at overloading. And in order to overload, you've got to have the bodies on one side of the pitch. And and, and as I say, it really does impress me that they're, they're able to, to run with it as easily as they do. 
you mentioned left backs in amongst that chat, and it's been one of the things you've written about and spoken about on this podcast recently. The problems at left back. Question from GB, who's in Melbourne. I've got a question around left back. I know that you've talked about that position being a bit unsettled between Douglas and Alioski. Just wanting to know what Bowser's thoughts are, or if we know what Bowser's thoughts are around Leif Davis. He hasn't featured in the squad for a while. He was sort of in and out of the squad beginning of the season, early in the season. Haven't seen him for a while, so just wanting to know if Bielsa rates him and if he's potentially going to be in the plans for the second half of the season. Should say for context, GB did send that message before we became aware of the fact that he'd had an operation, Leaf Davis. Okay, yeah. But where is he in, in Bielsa's plans generally? Very much in them. Yeah, very much in them. I still wonder with Davis whether ultimately he's going to be a, a left winger or, or a left back or or ideally a wing back. He's very good going forward. Um, he's one of the 23s that Bielsa really likes. But yeah, it was a knee operation, I think, just a minor minor cleanup job, which will mean he'll probably be missing for, for a month or so. So it's, it's not that he's not in the plans, he just isn't available at the moment. Let's pick a one to watch then, Phil. The thing that's going to be making the headlines potentially as we face Wigan this weekend, who or what is going to be the, the key issue using your psychic powers that are so so honed and strong and always accurate? Always. I'm tempted to say Perveda because it almost feels like we're more likely to see Perveda before we see Augustine. But it's got to be Augustine. I, I want to see him play. I, I want to see what, what he's about. I'm interested to find out whether we get to see him on... Saturday or whether we watch him sit on the bench behind Bamford who having scored a few goals is bound to score again on Saturday and will get himself into another of these, yeah. these little <laughs> runs that um, that always come so is he going to do a Niketia and sit and watch with his training top on or will he um, will he light up Ellen Road I hope it's mm. the latter well he's not one for cameos is he is um, Bielsa he's, he doesn't do it for, for sentiment no. he'll only ever do it for tactical reasons so you think maybe Augustine gets on at 3-0 something like that if we get there, probably not. No, I mean that—that that was the—that was Robbie Gott's problem, wasn't it? That, that Bielsa was just totally unwilling to say, "Do you know what the game's won? Just have five minutes, and then you can say you've played for the first team." It just isn't. Um, it isn't allowed. So Augustine will come on if he needs him. If he doesn't, you'll have the other subs that Bielsa tends to make as everybody sits there saying, "Play him." <laughs> There's every prospect, and I, I almost laugh like a drain if it happened. If if Bamford scores in. You know, every other game between now and the end of the season, we never play him. Oh, we never bring, <laughs> we never actually bring John Kevin on for a single minute. But then we are obligated because we're promoted to buy him from Leipzig. We have no idea if he can cut it in the in the Championship whatsoever. But suddenly we've got him in the Premier League, and Bamford ain't going to shift. He said, "Well, I'm 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 starting in the Premier League. You can sit on the bench, John." It's a nice problem to have, though. It is. It's better than uh, just Bamford with nobody. Great place to leave it for this episode of the podcast. And for ad-free podcasts, make sure you subscribe to The Athletic and listen through the app. You can get a 40% discount now by using the code LEADSPOD. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Phil Hay Show. We'll speak to you in a bit. Listener.